The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I think you know that the story of the cross as told in four Gospels is a unified story. It is told slightly differently by the different witnesses. And of course, some were not witnesses. Luke was not there, for one. Matthew, we believe, would have fled with the others. John, of those who wrote a Gospel, was probably the one who was the eyewitness. But no matter what you try to do, you cannot portray more than a slice of one gospel's telling of the events of the cross. I'm going to read from Matthew 27, starting at 32, but really the part I'm going to emphasize will be verses 45 through where I stop at 54. Matthew 27, I begin reading at 32. This is God's Word. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. May God have his blessing upon his word. If I were speaking to you at Christmas Eve, you would not be surprised if I would be speaking perhaps about some supernatural sign or deed or observation of something that happened near Bethlehem, the star of Bethlehem, the coming of the Magi from a far land who could only have known of that event by the message of God spoken to them, the virgin birth. There are many miraculous things we can raise when it's Christmas time, and we're talking about the entry of Christ into the world. I think maybe when we come to the exit of Christ from the world in his death, perhaps we don't think of that so much as a time of miracles or great signs. We, we think more of brutal violence and social things happening between people who don't like each other. But tonight from Matthew 27, I want to point out that just as Jesus entered the world with miraculous signs accompanying his entry, so did he exit with miraculous signs happening even within the few hours around the cross. Matthew 27 tells of at least four supernaturally caused events that attended the death of Jesus. They are First of all, a heavy darkness of a divine curse. Secondly, a torn curtain opening a new access to God. Thirdly, an earth tremor that opened graves. And fourthly, the birth cry of a very unlikely convert. I want to look at each of these briefly tonight. First of all, verses 45 to 48 tell us of heavy darkness signifying a divine curse. In the last three hours of Jesus' life, the sun had passed its noon meridian, but the land at a time of day when the sun should have been hot and even blazing, apparently for many miles around, we know not how far, was enveloped in unnatural darkness. Someone says, well, just a great coincidence. Guess it was an eclipse. Well, it wasn't an eclipse. We know that with a certainty because the Jewish Passover always was celebrated at a full moon. And any half-qualified astronomer will tell you you cannot have a solar eclipse when the moon is full. I can't explain that, but it's true. It doesn't work that way. So what was the cause? Sandstorm, somebody says. Other desert-type phenomenon. The plain fact is we don't know the cause except to say God was the cause of a darkness, an oppressive, heavy, unnatural darkness that lasted for several hours. 
The same God who we read of on the first page of Scripture who said, let there be light in the primordial chaos when all was dark and there was light at the command of God. There was darkness now at the command of God. Bright noonday turned into black gloom. The Old Testament, we believe, has many prophetic words that look toward this or give us some predictive interpretation of what was actually going on here. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 tells of a day of the Lord's wrath. And it says that is a day in which the Lord speaking, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. That's in a context of God bringing His judgment. Exodus 10.21 tells of a plague suffered in Egypt. You remember those terrible plagues that Moses brought at God's command. God brought them, but Moses announced them. And the second from the last plague was a plague of darkness over the whole land of Egypt. It lasted three days. And the book of Exodus called it a darkness which could be felt. Did you ever feel darkness? That certainly was a remarkable phenomenon. Jesus himself in his ministry more than once spoke about outer darkness as the destination of those who would reject him and would not receive his salvation. Outer darkness, he didn't describe in detail, but it obviously was a place where God's judgment would be exercised upon those who were without God, and there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You put these together, and there are others that I could have cited, and you get a scene of judgment. The darkness of Calvary was the shroud of judgment. On the cross, Jesus was in combat against the powers of evil. And he was actually under the curse of God, the wrath of God. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said in a verse of a hymn, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. And out of that darkness came that cry, the epic cry of the words of Jesus from the cross. There were a half dozen, about seven words, six or seven key words that he said at the cross. One of them was this word which is given in its original language. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoting Psalm 22, which we read together in this service. There are those who foolishly say Jesus felt terribly alone. Oh yes, he felt alone. He felt alone because he was alone. He was more alone than any man on this earth ever was or could have been. He was the most isolated human being in spiritual no man's land and utter condemnation under the curse of God. People ask me, maybe not frequently, but semi-often at least, what do we mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell? We mean this. This is it, folks. Not a journey to some other world. This is it. Hell came to the cross. And Christ descended into a pit. An abyss 
that had no bottom, a place so lonely and so awful, because he did this for us. He went there for us. Who can comprehend this? The face of God the Father had to turn away from God the Son. Now, the Godhead was not actually divided. That, I believe, would be a heresy. But God the Son had no fellowship with God the Father in that hour because he was experiencing our curse for us. Well, after the heavy darkness, secondly, another miracle at the cross is a torn curtain opening new access to God. There actually are Jewish historical sources that report that in the time of Jesus and at the time that would seem right for Jesus' death, there was some calamity within the temple. It was, wasn't recorded very well, but it seems to accord and fit the idea that the curtain before the Holy of Holies was damaged. Verse 51 says it happened that day. As people put things together later, they said, Oh, wasn't that on the day that Jesus died? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is some curtain, folks. I haven't measured floor to ceiling in this room, and I'd only be venturing a guess, but I think it's less than 40 feet. The temple between the holy place and the holy of holies was a heavy, multi-layer linen cloth or fabric curtain 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. That's half again as high as this sanctuary and much wider, or at least as wide as this open space here that I'm in the middle of. A huge curtain that had been constructed at God's command as the temple was built. And, and it was really there as the, one of the biggest no trespassing signs ever to exist in the world. Because it was in front of that place, a small room where the Ark of the Covenant was, containing the tablets of the law, where the priest, the high priest, went once a year and made that tremendous sacrifice. Can you imagine going in there with fear and trembling, wondering whether you'd come out alive? I was always struck by reading and understanding the fact that the, the priest had a, a rope of silk tied around his ankle. Because if he died in there, the other priests were not going in after him. They would pull him out with the silken rope. So huge was the concept that God symbolically dwelt in that holy of holies where the sacrifice was taken. And this curtain was the barrier. Do not casually enter here. This is not a place for you wandering about on a, with your tour guide on a tour of the temple. This was a place that said you come to the presence of God only with a sacrifice of blood and according to God's instructions. So serious is the sin of the Jewish people. Well, that curtain was torn. Hebrews 10 verse 19 seems to interpret that when it says, brothers, we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
and by a new and living way. You know, you really need to pay attention to the little details of the Bible. Did you ever notice before how it says this curtain was torn? Remember, 60 feet high. Uh, when, when I was a, co- a college student painter, we had a 40-foot ladder. And believe me, top of the 40-foot ladder, you're really up in the air. This is 60. How do you get up there to the top at 60 feet? How does this text say the curtain was torn? From top to bottom. If men are going to tear that curtain, they come with a knife or a sword or scissors and start at the bottom, believe me, and work up. The curtain was torn by the hand of God from top to bottom, miraculously announcing that the entire system of Old Testament sacrifices, which God himself had put in place as a lesson, as a a regular annual instruction to Israel that sin requires blood for its remission— Now God was saying, what I was pointing to in that whole system is accomplished. The system is needed no more. The temple is needed no more. The curtain is needed no more. The Holy of Holies is needed no more. Because what it was all about was accomplished on a hill that you folks regard as the garbage dump outside of town. And so thoroughly was the purpose of that temple system fulfilled that it was only one generation, A.D. 70, that the Romans came in under General Titus, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple and carted off all its riches. And you can go today and the wailing wall that you will be shown is part of the basement foundation. That's all the Romans left. And it has not been rebuilt and will not be rebuilt because there is no need for it again. The death of Christ tore open from top to bottom, the barrier keeping us symbolically from God and reminding us that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life to our God. Thirdly, of the miracles here around the cross, we're told of one that may sound, I think it does sound, like the most fantastic one. Broken tombs. And by the way, Matthew's the only one that reports this. Broken tombs and risen saints. That sounds unbelievable. You say, you mean people actually were resurrected? Well, interestingly, the text does note that they didn't appear until after the resurrection of Jesus. The important resurrection happened first, and the others were a consequence. Isn't that fitting? But people were actually noticed in the city that someone said, wait a minute, that's Thaddeus. Didn't he die? Look. Well, you can disbelieve Matthew if you want to, but I'll tell you, he's an accurate reporter of facts all through his gospel. We have no reason to doubt him on this particular score, even if he is the only one to report it. Liberal commentators say, what a foolish thing. That didn't happen. Well, I'll take Matthew's word. And notice, as I said, that they came after the resurrection of Jesus, reminding us when does our, our resurrection isn't guaranteed before his. It's a result of his. And so were these. Jesus and his rising from the dead is the root cause of saints of all ages having a real hope of a return to bodily life 
in a glorious new body that will not remain imprisoned in a grave. No matter how far scattered across the oceans or in the crevasses of the earth our dust, our bones may be due to acts of war or terrorism or shipwreck or who knows what, God will resurrect us because he resurrected his son. And this is a sign of it clearly here. We as Christians have the promise of glorified, imperishable bodies ahead of us at the coming of our Savior. We will not be floating spirits forever. We will be embodied, glorified people in the image of Christ. Well, the fourth and final miracle that's here, attending at the death of Jesus, is given in words, the words of the one man who speaks near the end of what I read. It's, of course, the exclamation from the Roman centurion. I studied Latin in high school. I remember learning about the Roman army and how it was organized. A centurion gets his name because he commands a hundred men, a century of men. He gets that job because he's been battle-proved. He's a tough guy, and he knew duty and how to carry it out. And yet here's this man, and apparently speaking for men who were with him, when it says they who executed Jesus were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Here's the birth cry of a most unlikely convert. Now think about this guy for a minute. He was the key person who had seen everything that happened to Jesus that day. I'm sure he was assigned to this. He was probably taking his turn as the officer in charge of of prisoners or executions for that day or that week or something. And so he'd been called for when Jesus was first dragged before Pilate, and he was there presiding probably dressed in his full uniform with a little bit of armor and a weapon and an attendant party of soldiers to help him. I want you to remember, too, that this man personally either permitted or ordered the gross cruelties that Jesus suffered as soldiers tormented him. This man was not somebody who had been off at the side somewhere and then suddenly came in for the last hour. He'd been there the whole time. He'd heard every word. He heard everything that was exchanged with Pilate. He saw everything that happened as Jesus dragged the crossbeam through the streets. He was the one who ordered Simon of Cyrene, this innocent bystander, to come and say, help him, carry the beam for him. Commands issued by this man killed Jesus. No doubt about it. He was Jesus' executioner. And it's safe to say nobody was closer to the action than he was. And yet, verse 54 says the result of that man's experience that day, seeing supernatural things happen all around him, seeing the amazement of this man and and his character and his quiet and his humility and his acceptance and his forgiveness, was, here in the text, he and the other soldiers were filled with awe. They knew that crucifixions didn't go this way. Most victims were screaming by this time. And having seen the way Jesus died and all that attended it, he said, truly, this man was 
the Son of God. I've read the liberal critics. I know what they say. I, I believed in having balance in my library. I have, if I think I have about 12 John commentaries, and two or three of them are by men whose theology I don't accept, but I need to know what they're saying. And there are those who say, well, no, no, no. Now, don't get overboard here. What he was saying, now, remember, he was a Roman, and Romans had a lot of gods, so we think the man was saying he was a son of a god. Pick your god. Romans had all kinds of them, dozens. Gods for the harvest, gods for the rivers, everything. He was a son of a god. Sorry, it won't work. The Greek language doesn't allow it. God caused the New Testament to be written in a most precise language. He was the singular son of the singular God. That's what the man said. That's what the Greek reports. We are right to take this as a Christian profession of faith. Do you realize the thief, the believing thief who stopped cursing and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He was the last Christian convert before Jesus died. The centurion was the first after Jesus died. I think we count this man as one of God's saved people, the very same man that said, be sure you drive those nails deep through his wrists. Don't let him slip off the cross. There's a sure and simple way to make a Christian profession of faith. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Well, this man didn't have a resurrection to believe in just yet. But he sure confessed with his mouth that Jesus was Lord, the Son of God. The doctrine of the cross of Christ is a foolishness to many people, including ordained ministers, believe it or not. But a believer's response to the cross comes about, and you need to know that when it's true, it happens as a miracle transformation of God. Because it has to transform what the Bible calls a dead heart of stone. We are spiritually born dead in our trespasses and sins. This man was certainly born dead in his trespasses and sins. God had to transform him in a miraculous way by his Holy Spirit. And here at Calvary, with miracles stacked one upon another, the darkness at noon, the temple curtain, the earthquake, the resurrected believers, not the least of the miracles was a most unlikely convert speaking up in a strong declaration of faith, stating the most unlikely thing you would ever expect this man to say. But God who made heaven and earth transforms hearts. And that's what he did. Here is the wonder of the new birth, a soul newly born of the same man who killed the prince of life. Is that amazing or what? He was a Gentile. He had the blood of Jesus on his hands, but guess what? Who came to Jesus' cradle before any of the Jewish people were really thinking about the king of Israel? Magi, Gentiles, from a far-off land. And God also miraculously guided them to find the new king of Israel. A heart of stone had been melted by the Holy Spirit. All I want to tell you tonight, folks, 
is that that supernatural darkness that shrouded Jesus on that historic day was there because of the mountain-sized darkness that can be felt from our sins. Jesus was all alone in the midst of that darkness, experiencing the wrath of God. I have no idea. I won't even begin to try to describe what that was. I can't imagine the horror of it. But then I think he did it for me. He did it for you. His redemption was miraculously brought about by the suffering of the Son of God. But the Scripture says those who die without Christ, without him being a redeemer, a savior, a substitute for them, they will depart from this life into a permanent abyss of endless darkness. Forget about the flames thing. Eternal darkness is as bad as it gets. Thank God we see a gospel of saving grace here in this passage. A new convert, a heart conversion, the Spirit of God supernaturally at work in the great miracle that he's done several hundred times just for you folks in this room. Has he done it for you? Has he turned your hard heart to say, surely this man was the Son of God? I pray you can say that. I'm really frightened for you if you can't. Surely this man was the Son of God. Today, Christ still calls millions out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's still reaching the unlikely people, the least likely ones. Don't ever stop praying for some friend or family member who you say, oh, God's never going to save Charlie. Uh Uh-huh. Don't you think they said that about the man who killed Jesus? God saved the executioner. He may well save the one you're praying for if you just continue praying. He's waiting for you to pray so he can do his miracle of heart transformation once again as he's done it millions of times. Let's pray together. Father, this is a solemn night. There's joy beneath it. There's joy beneath our feet. And we want to get to Sunday, Lord, when we can just open our mouths and bellow the joy in the hallelujahs. But actually tonight is a time to be quiet, a time to ponder, a time to be filled with awe as these soldiers were. Thank you that in the most horrible scene we can imagine your son being killed on a cross. Your miracles were happening. And they were even happening because that was taking place. Oh God, we thank you for your great salvation. Impress us with thanksgiving and praise tonight for what Jesus did for us in our place. We praise his holy name. Amen.